0: As G.K. Chesterton said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Here on Swimming Upstream, we go against the cultural stream by championing life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Your host is Eric Salmons, author of seven books, including Holiness for Everyone, The Old Evangelization, and Bitcoin Basics. Now let's get swimming. Welcome to episode 98 of Swimming Upstream. I'm Eric Sammons. Today I'm going to share a, a recording of a class I recently taught, uh, and the topic is marriage. And I really had kind of carte blanche to talk about whatever I want to about marriage, and our, it was the focus was the sacrament of matrimony, and the context was a catechism class in which we are going through the different sacraments at this point. And so I didn't have a lot of time, it was only about a half an hour, and I basically, I spoke on mostly the purpose of marriage, the elements of marriage, and how the Church determines validity of marriage, whether or not a marriage is valid or not. And so hopefully you'll enjoy this, give you a basic primer on how the Church looks at marriage and the difference between the sacramental marriage and natural marriage, and other topics related to that. hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Okay, so Father talked about holy orders. Now I'm going to discuss marriage. Uh, One thing that's interesting about the sacrament of matrimony or sacrament of marriage is unlike all the other sacraments, it actually pre-existed the time of Christ on earth. And so, for example, all the sacraments had signs or types in the Old Testament. For example, uh, circumcision. You know, baptism, uh, circumcision is a type of baptism. Uh, The the offering of Melchizedek of bread and wine points to the Eucharist, things like that. But marriage itself actually existed from the very beginning. And it was established by God at creation. And we read in uh, Genesis 2.24... It says, where is it? He said, then, well, starting at 23. Then man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. And so we see that marriage was established at creation before the fall. And now just to make sure we're all clear, what exactly is marriage? is a lifelong monogamous union of one man and one woman. That's it. There is no other type of marriage than that. And, in fact, marriage was established as part of human society. In fact, it is, in a sense, human society. I mean, you think about Adam and Eve. That was human society when they were married. And it still is human society. It's the way in which our... Uh, in the way in which we all live, the way where uh, children are brought up into a family, it's a mini society. You know, we call, uh, the church calls of him also a domestic church, but before that, it's a domestic uh, culture, domestic country, a domestic society, whatever you might want to call it. Now, the reason that God established marriage, there's actually three purposes to marriage, two of them from the beginning, and one only happened after the fall. The first, and this is in kind of order of importance, the first one, uh, purpose of marriage, is the procreation of the species. The procreation of, of, of humanity. And marriage is perfectly suited for the procreation, for obvious reasons, because that's where sexual relations happen, but also the upbringing of children. Not just the creation of children, but the upbringing of children. And in fact, it says in, in Genesis 1.28, again, this is established right at the beginning, it says, and God blessed them, this is Adam and Eve at this point, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so right from the beginning, marriage was created primarily for the generation and the rearing of children. And the and we'll, we'll see in a minute the different elements of the two major elements of marriage and how they're both directed towards children. And so we see this is the primary purpose. We see it's a natural law. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about this. This is the primary purpose of marriage is the procreation of children. Now, the second purpose is the mutual health <coughs> and unity, I guess you would say, of the spouses. And this also is in Genesis. We see a creation in Genesis 2, 18, I think it is. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so really, we are created, every human person is created for uh in a relationship with others, particularly first and foremost with God. But if you see, and it all takes, you know, we're, we're creating the image of God. Well, God is not alone. Even when he's by himself, so to speak, because what is he? he? Is a unity of three persons: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, the family marriage is a reflection of the Trinity in a sense, because it's a unity of multiple people. In fact, you could one analogy is made that the, the you know in in Catholic theology, the Father uh, he uh, the son comes from the father, and then they their love together... It, I'm sorry, let me start over. <laughs> the father, he has a, a mind and a will, an intellect and a will. His intellect, when he thinks, what does he think about? He thinks about himself. And that is the, so real that it creates the person, not creates the wrong word. Whenever you talk about the Trinity, you always use words that don't actually work Always. Because no human words can really say it, and that is the son. And then he has a will. And what does he do with the will? He loves, and the son loves him back. And that love between them is the Holy Spirit. Well, you see that in a family because you have the father, you have the father and the mother, and their love together is so real that nine months later, nine months later, you give it a name. And so that's a reflection. Obviously, not perfect. But it, it's, it's a reflection of the Trinity. So the mutual help and unity of the, of the spouses is another purpose of marriage because we're made to be in communion with others. Now, the third purpose of marriage is actually didn't happen until after... The purpose wasn't until after the fall. It's a remedy for concupiscence. So a remedy... And I can never spell concupiscence without looking, so I will... <laughs> Uh, Yeah, we'll say that's right. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 7, 2, St. Paul is writing about marriage, and it says, because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Because of the fall, we all have concupiscence, and one of the major ways in which that comes forth is in the sexual drive. We don't have it directed properly. We can't control it properly. And so that's a reason for marriage is so a man and a woman can properly direct that drive that they have naturally. And so that's really the, the three purposes of marriage in this aura is procreation of species, a mutual help unity, and a rib- remedy for concupiscence. It is here, isn't it? Okay. So now, there's two essential elements to... I'll write it lower, because I want to keep this up here. The two essential elements of marriage are unity and indissolubility. I'll misspell that one, too, without looking, I think. And so, basically, both of these... If you think about what is the way that you break these two, you break unity with like polygamy or adultery. You break indissolubility through divorce. Now, if we note, after the fall, both of these were broken because you see in the Old Testament, for example, that men had multiple wives. and You see also that divorce was allowed. Now, this was permitted but not endorsed by God. Of course, later... Uh, Christ explains, for example, that divorce is allowed because of the hardness of hearts. And so in no way does God endorse those practices, but he did allow them. Now, the reason these are essential elements, it points to, like I said earlier, it points to procreation. Marriage is, is directed towards children. And so it's only if you have unity and indissolubility will you have a unit, a family unit, that is best uh, created and best directed for the proper upbringing of children. If you don't know, for example, if your father is, you know, loves your mother, and you don't know that your mother loves your father, and nobody else in that way, that's gonna, that causes problems for the children. They don't have that ability to have that safe environment of knowing that they have just one father, one mother who loves them, and is their mother and father, and takes care of them. Same with indissolubility, even more so, I would say, because if you have no idea if your father or mother is going to leave in any moment, that the relationship is going to be broken in any moment, then that makes it very difficult for the rearing of children. So you see how the essential elements of marriage are directed towards procreation. Now, of course, today in our world, most people think of marriage as just simply uh, two people, could be a man or woman, could be you know, two men, two women, and actually more than two people, you hear some people say, that basically are just almost have common cause. It's almost like marriage has become like a social group, like the Elks Club or something like that. Well, these two people have a... It's like an Elks Club of Benefits or something like that. They they Basically, it's not really... Children have nothing to do with it is the common idea of marriage. But yet, marriage as it was created by God is primarily directed towards children and also his other purposes. And we see that in those essential elements. Now, you notice so far, I haven't even talked about it being a sacrament or talked about Christ or anything like that. Because this is all true, these two in the beginning and this from the beginning, the first, and then after the fall, this one as well. That was all the case from the beginning. However, Christ, in this situation, what he did was he elevated marriage to a sacrament. So no longer was it simply just a natural institution, but it was now one that was uh, Elevated to a sacrament to a sacramental grace, and he does this. we see in, in Matthew nineteen, which is the famous today, especially passage, where the Pharisees come up to him and they ask, Is it lawful to divorce one 's wife for any cause? Now the reason for that question was is that they all knew the Pharisees knew that it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. now a wife couldn 't actually divorce her husband, but a man could give a wife a certificate for divorce. But it was unclear to the Jews what reasons the man could give for doing it. Some, on the more liberal end, say basically he doesn't like her cooking. That's good enough. Others said it had to be more strict, like something more like closer maybe adultery or some, infidelity something like that. Now, in Christ's time, most of the leading Jewish teachers would say, uh, very, have a very liberal, basically for almost any reason a man could divorce his wife. That's why they're asking this question. They want to know, where do you stand on this controversy, Christ, Jesus? And of course... He, ele- he, he completely changes the discussion. So instead of saying, well, you can only divorce for these reasons, he basically says divorce is not allowed. You may not divorce your wife. And, of course, this gives, in one sense that people don't, wouldn't understand, you know, don't really recognize today, this actually, what it does, it elevates also the, the status of women. Because now they could, because think about it, in that culture, a man could just decide, okay, I'm done with you. Well, that woman has literally no support structure now, social structure to help her, and she's basically going to be, could potentially be homeless, have nothing to really support her because she was completely dependent upon the man in that situation. And so what Christ is doing is, beyond just the idea of re-emphasizing now the unity and indissolubility, which were uh, offenses against them were permitted in the Old Testament. Now he's saying, no, they're not permitted anymore. He's also elevating the role of women in society because he's not allowing this to happen where a man can just basically set aside a woman. I'm pretty sure that it's still true, that it's true in Islam that a man can simply uh, divorce his wife for any reason, and it kind of harkens back to the Old Testament. Now Christ didn't only... And so just what, real quick, what Christ said is says. They are no longer two but one. Therefore, God has joined together. Let no man put asunder. So it's impossible for any human being to uh, dissolve a marriage. Once a valid marriage occurs, it cannot be in, uh, dissolved except for through the death of one or both of the spouses. And so, in a sense, what Christ is doing is he's elevating it back to its original state, but he's elevating it to a point that simply is not possible after the fall. Except for now, you get sacramental grace attached to it. So it still has these purposes and these elements, but now it also reflects and participates in the union of Christ and his church. So it has a much greater meaning. And we see that in Ephesians. St. Paul writes about that where he says in Ephesians 5, uh, really talks about from 21 through 33, but at the end he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. However, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So now, marriage is more than just simply this natural institution between a man and a woman that basically is necessary for a a decent society and for the upbringing of children, now it even has a further purpose, a further element, which is that it is participating in the union of Christ and his church. And so now we have the grace so that what was impossible before because of the fall is now possible because of the sacramental grace in which we're given in the sacrament of marriage. And we're going to talk in a minute about the fact that there are natural marriages, there are and sacramental marriages, and the difference between them. But basically, that because he made it a sacrament, of course Christ made it a sacrament, and of course he gave the church the power to regulate the sacraments. The church is the one who determines, you know, who can be uh, whether or not you're eligible to be uh, ordained a priest who can receive, uh, when you receive communion, when you can receive confirmation, all those things. They also can regulate what makes a valid marriage. Now, they can't change the essential elements. They can't say that a man and a man can get married, for example. The essential, the essential part of what makes a marriage a man and a woman, they can't change that. They also can't change that, the idea that uh, you could be divorced. So those things that are essential elements of the, the and purposes of marriage. They can't change that. But they can change and they who can get married. Yes. On on the subject of divorce, Christ also later says that well, says something like you can't divorce except for sexual Right. And that's not exactly what he says, but that's what that might be what a lot of translations say. And the book actually addresses that issue in one... He says it in two different Gospels, in Mark and in Matthew. In Mark, that clause isn't there, but in Matthew it is. And there's been a lot of debate on what exactly that means. And basically, the most common... Let me find it here, make sure I... It, it, the, the, the Greek word is porneia, which, you know, por, pornography is a, a word we get from that. But And that word porneia has a kind of a... It's a debatable mean, meaning, what it what it means, but most theologians would say, or solid theologians, I should say, would say it has more to do with, for example, the idea of, uh, of an incestuous relationship, for example. So, for, in that case, it's not actually a valid marriage. So, in, in the case he's talking about the, the exception clause, it's actually not an exception. It's simply a, a notice of, like, if it's not really a marriage, it's not a valid marriage, then it's not, then it can be dissolved well technically it can't be dissolved, it never actually existed. But it is a very debatable point. And I would point you to in the book, in the in the book, they, they have a number of the different possibilities for what it means. And on page six fourteen to six fifteen. They list, I think, about four or five of them. And they say there's and they, I think they even refer you to a book that has all like a bunch of them. So I just I refer you to that for the different meanings of that kind of exception clause in there. But that's a great point because that, that can be very confusing for people. So some of the ways in which the church can uh, regulate who can get married and the validity of marriage is, for example, the age. Currently the church says a man, the book says the church says a man must be 16, a woman must be 14, but I feel like I read somewhere that they've raised the woman's age to 16 as well, but I'm not sure about that. So, for example, of course, different countries have different cultures, and over time, because we might think, "Wow, a, a, t- a 14-year-old girl getting married is kind of crazy," but obviously, our our lady was probably around 14 when she uh, was married to Saint Joseph, and it just depends on the culture. But that's one way they can regulate it. So, it wouldn't be a valid marriage, for example, if a, a 15-year-old boy married somebody, even if they were Catholic and it was and a priest even you know was there and all that's in a church, so it still would not be valid. Uh, things like you can't have a close relationship by blood. A brother and sister can't be married. Uh, aunt and uncle can't be married. Uh, another thing is a godparent can't marry a godchild. Uh, things like uh, uh, if a man is is impotent, he can't get married. Um, if, obviously, if there's an existing marriage, they can't get married. So even though I know you know people get divorced civilly and remarry. Technically, they're not remarried, they're still married to the first one unless there was some annulment in that situation, in which case the declaration there was no marriage. Um, but there's, the point is is that the church can define who can validly be married. Now, one real quick point, I'm not gonna dwell on it too much, but just wanna bring it up. And that is, of course, a lot of people, uh, probably not people in this room, but a lot of people get confused with the idea of annulments. The idea that it's kind of like a Catholic divorce. It's our back door to allow divorce. But what an annulment is, its a, the, the, what really technically is called is a declaration of nullity. And what the church is saying is there was never a valid marriage in the first place. And they don't do that by saying what happened after the marriage. They're saying at the moment the marriage happened, so at the wedding ceremony itself, it was not validly done. Now, the most common reason given is something, for example, one of the two people did not understand what they were getting into. One example is, for, uh, I remember when I lived in Maryland, I did these uh, sessions with parishioners where people could come in asking a question about the Catholic faith. I remember this woman came, and she had married at a young age. I think she was about 19 or so, something like that. Divorced pretty soon after that. She was Catholic, remarried, Actually, she, she married an Anglican priest. But she wanted to come back to the church, but she knew, of course, her, her, her second marriage wasn't, wasn't valid, or, you know, she didn't know what the status of it was or anything like that, and so she wanted to know about that. But when she told her story, basically, her mom forced her to get married to the first guy, and he made it clear at the time of marriage he, had, he did not want any kids. Well, that's like strike one and strike three right there. I mean, it's like, that's almost undoubtedly, now, I told her, of course, I referred her to a priest who would take care of it officially, but there's almost definitely an invalid marriage right there. Because if, for, if either party, for example, makes it clear they don't want to have children, that, then they don't, they're not entering into the sacrament properly. And likewise, if you're forced into it, in this case, you know what force means, the church decides. But in this case, it sounded like the mom basically forced this girl into it, when she, this woman when she was a girl, into it. So the point is, is that an annulment is simply stating that at the time of marriage, at the time of the wedding, a sacrament never happened that they weren't actually validly married. And so that's why the person can get, quote-unquote, remarried. Now, of course, there's the difference between a sacram- you know, the, the sacramental marriage in the church and then a civil wedding or a civil divorce, for example. And so a couple can get civilly divorced, and if they don't go through an annulment, they're still, they're still married in the eyes of the church, and that's why they can't get remarried, even if they have a civil divorce. Because the divorce isn't the uh, a civil divorce is just simply the state stating for legal reasons. Okay, just for example, these people won't their inheritances won't go to each other and things like that. It's simply a legal situation. Now, one thing that I've always found confusing myself is the different types of valid and invalid marriages you can have. And I loved on page six twenty eight they had like a chart. Um, they had a, a chart, a, a whole list of all the different types of marriages you can have and whether or not they're valid or invalid. And I was like, this is great. I've always been confused myself. And I've, I mean, I've like run marriage prep for a diocese and I still get confused on this sometimes. And basically it has like 10 different situations. So for example, a Catholic and a Catholic and a Catholic ceremony. That's a valid sacramental marriage. This is one that people don't know, is that a Catholic and a Catholic, if they get married in a non-Catholic ceremony, for example, if they get married by a Justice of Peace, or even at the beach by a priest that's not allowed by the bishop, that's not a valid marriage. They have to get an exemption for that. I remember I, I worked at a diocese down in Florida, and so beach weddings were like the huge thing. Everybody wanted, and our bishop just never allowed it. He's like, no, I'm just not going there. And people you know, hate him because of that. But you're suppo- one of the things you're supposed to do in a Catholic ceremony you get married in a Catholic church. Obviously there are some of these the the bishop can dispense and others they can't. And so they could dispense on, for example, getting married in a uh, Catholic church if they felt there was a reason. A Catholic and a non-Catholic Christian in a Catholic ceremony is a valid sacramental marriage, but permission is required from the bishop or his delegate. One thing I want to note is, when it says a non-Catholic Christian, the assumption is it's a baptized. Because there are people out there who say, you know, who are Protestants, and they say they're Christian and everything, but they're not baptized. I had a friend in college who was like, ah, I'll get baptized someday maybe, but it's not that important. And he was a practicing Christian. I, I put that in quotes because you're actually not a Christian if you're not baptized. So, anyway, that, when they say a Catholic and non-Catholic Christian, they mean a baptized one. Because basically in that situation, you have two baptized people getting married in a, a loud way by the bishop, And so, therefore, it's a valid sacramental marriage. A Catholic and an unbaptized person in a Catholic ceremony in which a dispensation is given, that is not a sacramental marriage because, as Father mentioned earlier, you can't receive a sacrament if you're not baptized. And so no sacrament is conferred. Because one thing I wanted to mention, I actually forgot to bring this up, is that the minister of a marriage is not the priest or the bishop. It's the, it's the man and the woman. They're actually administering, in a sense, the sacrament to each other. So if one's not ba- baptized, that just can't happen. And so, in that case, it's a valid marriage, though. It's a real marriage, but it's a natural marriage. And so, the difference between a sacramental and natural marriage is in a natural marriage, you're not receiving the sacramental grace. I mean, that's probably the most obvious way to put it, but it really is a marriage. So you're bound, it still has the same purpose the same elements, it's still directed towards the same reasons and all of that. It's just you're simply not getting the sacramental grace. And so you're putting yourself behind the eight ball, really. Now, and then we start getting now, so a Catholic and a non-Catholic Christian in a non-Catholic ceremony, without a dispensation, it's invalid. With a dispensation from the bishop, it's valid. Uh, Things like, uh, you know, Catholic, Orthodox, Christian. But then we go all the way down, like... And this is what I think is the most interesting is number 10, is an unbaptized person and another unbaptized person, they have a valid natural marriage. And so even they, in the eyes of the church, so for example, even they have a valid marriage, and so it can't be dissolved either. So for example, if let's say a, two unbaptized people got married, valid natural marriage, then they divorced and then the, the unbaptized person wanted to marry a Catholic, well, that wouldn't be allowed because that person is still validly married. I mean, it's a natural marriage, but it still could be validly married. Um, so the, the, the point of all of this is that there are two different types of marriage, sacramental and natural, and you have to be baptized to, to receive the sacramental, but there are ways in which that even a baptized person, they, their marriage could be considered invalid. And so what's happening is in the number one, for example, Catholic and Catholic and Catholic ceremony is valid sacramental marriage. The assumption, remember, is that both parties are participating in this properly. So, for example, the, the man who says, I don't, I'm not going to have any kids, he is actually now, the, you could you know, one way you could say is the matter, so to speak, is invalid. The person is invalid in the sense that they're not valid to be married sacramentally. And so in that case, it would be an invalid marriage. So that's where an annulment, a declaration of nullity, is the proper way to say it, would happen. So I, I basically, I know I just ran through that, but I wanted to kind of cover the, the most basic parts, but now we're reaching the end of our time. So are there any questions about uh, marriage or anything that I covered? No? My well, Yes. is I have a friend who got married to a Hindu. So he's obviously unbaptized. But right. he, had, he had a mass and everything. Like, they were married in a Catholic ceremony. Well, it wasn't technically a Catholic ceremony, the actual marriage part. Because I mean, I guess you could call it, basically is a natural marriage. You can surround things, like for example, a marriage can happen without a mass right. attached to it. Likewise, a natural marriage ceremony can happen with a mass attached to it. And so there are graces given in the mass regularly. I think it's a little irregular. I, I don't, it doesn't sound like something I, I would right. recommend. But, but the point is, is that it's, um, it's, just, it's still just a natural marriage. Because the person's unbaptized. So it's not a sacramental marriage in that case, even though they might have had a priest and they might have had a mass and all that. Right. that yeah. Yes? So in the beginning, when God saw, did Adam say, like, I'm alone, or God saw him? he was alone? Right, and it was not good. And that's why he made Eve. So why is, like, the number one, two, three, why is the mutual help and unity not the first? Well, the whole purpose, though, of, of one of the main purposes of having Eve as well, as Adam, okay. is, is to have children. Why wouldn't he just make another guy? You know, okay. there's not Adam and Steve, it's Adam and Eve. So because of what yeah. he said in that right. order. Right, right. Yeah, kidding. no, it's okay. a good question. So the, the purpose of it being a woman and not just another man, because a man oh. could be a helper, Got it. could be okay. a, a companion and what have you, in a different way, but the reason it's a woman is because it's also now the procreation of children. This yes. Back in the same thing, I always thought this was curious too, that same period. Who were Cain and Abel married to? Well, most people would say, uh, first of well, all, Adam I and Eve had a lot more kids than just, than just Cain and Abel. Okay. And so oh, okay. the, the most, most people would say that there was like basically God kind of made it so for the first generations of humanity that you could have intermarriage of siblings without the moral problems but also without the uh, biological problems. And so then eventually, though, after a certain time, that was kind of lifted. And part of the reason it was kind of lifted was because, really, and they have a good explanation in the book about this. You don't just, you know, they don't just forbid marriage between a brother and sister simply because, or a mother and a son, or anything, like that, simply for biological reasons, but because that would disrupt the entire unity of a family. If you introduce, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of sexual. Uh, love in there you completely destroy in a sense the unity of a family because that's part of the reason you're completely comfortable in a family of men and women and why men and women, it's no problem for them to live alone when they're part of families, family. It's because of the fact that we all know there's no possibility of breaking, of breaking that. Um, so that's why that's, one of the, that's the main reason why that, that exists is because it would destroy the unity of a family. Like. The, children. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Any other questions? Okay, uh, Father, do you want to finish with prayer? Sure. Uh, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, we touch ourselves to the care of the Mother of God. Now Mary. The grace of the Lord is with thee. Blessed, blessed art thou among women, and, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mary, Mother of God, pray Lord, for Lord, us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Our Lady of of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.